The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The hard-fought defensive battle in the Champagne has come to an end. With a powerful employment of men and material, the enemy has sought to overrun the thin German lines. German Crown Prince Wilhelm, Commander, Heeresgruppe Deutscher Kronprinz, October 13th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 70, Champagne, Blancmont, part 4. Always going to begin with the shout-outs, and first and foremost, a big shout-out to Steven Gerrard. Steve has not only come on the podcast and recorded the past three introduction quotes, he has also ensured that my telling of the swirling events of Blancmont were as accurate as possible. And I cannot thank you enough, sir. Thank you once again. This episode, I also want to thank listeners Kay, Michiel, my good friend, Troy, and John with the Gordon Highlanders Ancestry for signing up on Patreon. Thank you so much, folks. And Michiel, I hope to see you next summer over there. I'll spare everyone the Patreon speech, but I will say that if you're interested, go here, www.patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast. I've spared you the Patreon pitch so I can give you the reviews pitch. Folks, for all of you who have submitted a review recently, I can only say thank you so much. It's a rough time in the world right now, and not everyone can sign up for Patreon. But there is something you can do that won't take but a few seconds or a few minutes of your time, depending. A great way to help the podcast is to leave a review on iTunes. You can just do a quick hit the stars and leave, or you can hit the stars and write a few words for the show. Last I checked, the BFWWP had 475 reviews. That's getting awfully close to 500, and it's wicked awesome. So, leave a review. Final admin note. Another facepalm moment, folks. Last episode, I said the following line, that attack's beginning time was 0600, with the objective being the road fork at Say Farm, a kilometer south of Saint-Étienne. So what I should have said was, with the objective being the road fork a kilometer south of Saint-Étienne leading to Skay Farm. Skay Farm is actually out of the 2nd Division sector, on the right and directly north of Medea Farm. Whoops, my apologies. Okay, back in the line. We begin with an exchange a timeless one, between the young and inexperienced and the old veteran, between the raw and the seasoned, between those who have seen hell and those who have not. Quote, Wind fought with rain and drove it, thin and cold, in sudden gusts that drenched the plodding column of men headed to the rear to get some rest. The men were quiet, patient, Wary beasts who had done their best in storms of sterner stuff and somehow won. What mattered then the price that lay behind? A battered, filthy, ragged crew. They did not look like soldiers. Beards, weak old, bristly growth ringed around thin-lipped, silent mouths. 
helped to frame wary eyes that had a glare of madness in their depths, or gazed out blankly, hiding warmth and any thought of hope. The wind won out. The storm clouds first massed and threatened, then fled and let the wan October sun shine down. Spirits rose against the warmth of it, and voices broke out in talk among the files. There was a place of shelter up ahead, billets, food, and maybe bottled stuff. The field kitchens? Yes. The regimental trains had passed this way. The slow kilometers gave way to marching feet. The thunder of the distant guns was just a rumble now where we had left a hard-won ridge, and many men. A fast-stepping column moving on a main road crossed our way, and we fell out of ranks to rest and watch them pass by. They were tall, clean-cut fellows, walking rapidly toward the guns. A new division, this, just off the ships, not long from home. Was there such a place? This was a sight to make a soldier glad, strong, stalwart men who walked with eagerness. We had walked like that at one time. Was it in June? Rough, ribald jokes. The passing column laughed at the sight of us. Hey, crumbs, why don't you wash your dirty necks? Call them soldiers, son? Why, that's a bunch of tramps. Why don't you get some uniforms and use some soap? What outfit's that, you dirty, lousy bums? They asked for it. We had answers by then for such as that. Hey, you, loudmouthed bastard over there. You'll make a handsome-looking corpse tomorrow. One saw sudden dread spread over his face, below a sickly smile that masked his fear. And you, long, tall, and noble, have you got two good legs? Yeah, damn well right I have you. Well, you won't have them for long. One of them will be gone when you come out. It wasn't just the ones addressed who flinched. The effect of what was said went through the ranks and cut youthful banter short. Imagine pictures. It was as though a curse had been placed on them, a superstition, a sudden, awful vision of what awaited them up ahead. They were just lads who threw their youth at us, already old. Hey, Lieutenant, you're going to get a bayonet in your guts. The silent column paced away toward the guns. We took to our own road and cursed beneath our breath. End quote. Now that comes to us from Elton Mackin's memoir, Suddenly, We Didn't Want to Die. The Battle of Blancmont Ridge continued. Blancmont itself had now been taken, but the constant pressure on the slowly retreating German army had to be maintained. For the Americans assigned to General Henri Gohol's French Fourth Army, this meant that the fresh and untested 36th Division was relieving the bled-out veteran 2nd Division. These brand-new Texas and Oklahoma doughboys would carry on the push. German Lieutenant Colonel Ernst Otto, author of the post-war book titled The Battle at Blancmont, had a deep respect for the American 2nd Division, beginning with a statement that by this point in the war, the German army was simply worn out. He went on to say, quote, It was precisely this lack of rest that wore out the German army when, upon the employment at the front of numerous American divisions, the war got beyond our power. But this does not detract from the renown of the American 2nd Division. Its advance of October 3rd was magnificent. When reviewing the attack of this division against the Bois de Belleau, which took place on June 6, 1918, I found it necessary to criticize the attack order issued by the French Corps commander, General de Gaulle. The Corps order of General Nolin concerning the employment of the 2nd Division on October 3rd is admirable. The vice-like grip brought about in the advance of two separately attacking divisions was bound to be extraordinarily effective, especially as the American 3rd Brigade took the German positions on the hill in the flank and was able to continue a successful advance through the ravines. The method of avoiding a certain portion of terrain, leaving it unattacked in the beginning of the offensive, is one that was repeatedly utilized by the Germans during their major combats and was much liked by the higher officers and much disliked by the troops. 
Officers experienced in frontline command know the difficulty that lies in accomplishing an attack mission when hostile machine guns, located in the flanks, are being disregarded and left for later attacks by other troops. They are apt to bring the entire offensive to an untimely end. To eliminate them with gas or artificial fog is not so simple. No one knows exactly where they are located, and in this case, the gassing of a triangular terrain with a front two kilometers long was, of course, out of the question. Only those who have witnessed combats of this type know their difficulties and can thus fully appreciate the excellent execution of this attack by the American 2nd Division. As the fresh-faced doughboys of the 36th relieved their 2nd Division brethren, the French on the left were getting hammered by the Germans in the village of Saint-Étienne. The poilus of the 62nd Infantry Regiment tried desperately to hold on to the ruins. The German 8th Jaeger Regiment, however, also wanted the village. From the commander of the 8th Jaegers, one Graf von Hulissen, quote, The attack of the infantry, plunging forward at 6.15 a.m., encountered generally heavy resistance within the strongly occupied village. According to the statement of a prisoner, it was held by one battalion of the French 62nd Infantry Regiment, 22nd Division. At 7.15 a.m., the regimental commander received verbal reports via guard detachments transporting prisoners to the rear that the Central Assault Detachment and the one that attacked along the west edge of the village had pushed through as far as the south edge. At 7.45 a.m., in the same manner, a report was received that, in the eastern portion of the village, there was still fighting over the possession of a small strip of woods. At 7.58 a.m., a message came that contact had been established between the companies of the 24th and 4th Jaeger battalions. Our casualties were reported by no means slight. At 9.50 a.m., it was stated that, since 8.10 a.m., the eastern portion of Saint-Étienne, and thus now the entire village, was in our hands. In this attack, our four tanks did not participate, as they were unable to cross the Iron Brook two meters wide. Twenty-four hours earlier, the stone bridge across it had been blasted by the 284th Pioneer Company, and another bridge farther east was not strong enough for tanks. The main line of resistance now extends around the south exit of the village. There is contact on the left with the 1st Battalion, 149th Infantry, and on the right with the 16th Jaeger Battalion. The light machine gun squad, located at 8.30 a.m. at the southwest exit of the village, was subjected to crossfire of French machine guns and is reported missing since then. The village is still full of Frenchmen who have hidden in houses and cellars and are sniping from ambush. All forces now at the disposal of the Jaeger regiment are being employed to mop up the village. End quote. The French counterattack out of the southwest after blasting Saint-Étienne's ruins to further bits with a heavy bombardment around midday. Poilus assaulted and fought a vicious street fight that saw them victorious, although the cemetery position remained in German hands. They also attacked further to the west, where Poilus also, quote, attacked the left flank battalion of the 476th Infantry Regiment, which was in lines west of Saint-Étienne. They penetrated its lines as far as the main line of resistance, but by means of a counterattack that was launched at once, were again thrown out. During this attack, the 476th Infantry Regiment suffered such heavy losses that it was forced to draw all three battalions into its front lines." End quote. The French were maintaining the pressure, and on the 8th, the Americans were to get back into the fight. So the 7th was spent getting the men of the 71st Brigade, 36th Division, into the front line. It was hard going. The new officers and men did not know the shell-blasted terrain. Guides likely knew the terrain little better, and maps were probably rarer 
than a knowledgeable guide. The Texas and Oklahoma boys were also brand new to this living, waking nightmare. See what I did there, Rob? And the war gave them no chance to slowly wade into the pool. The Germans discovered and shelled columns of the fresh units as they maneuvered onto the battlefield as stealthily as they could. The new doughboys also just didn't know things. As recounted in Roman Cancier and Ed Gilbert's Osprey book, Blankmont Ridge, 1918, America's Forgotten Victory, U.S. Marine Corporal Warren Jackson watched as shells landed near a group of 36th Division men. As the shells landed, someone yelled out, Gas! Gas! The French liaison officer with the new unit immediately began to try to settle the men down, calling out, Bagas! Bagas! Which meant, not gas. And in the spirit of new guys who just can't win or do anything right, We've all been there. An American officer then replied to the Frenchman's call with, Put on your masks, men. Put on your masks. That's the worst gas there is. Private Eugene McLean of the 132nd Machine Gun Company, 71st Brigade, later wrote that we surely had some exciting times. We went up, as we thought, very quietly, but the Huns were on the watch, and before we arrived at our destination, we were fired on by machine guns. Luckily, only one man was touched, and he was only hit on the helmet. The men of the 36th also brought with them a new weapon that was just trickling its way into the Western Front. This was the new Browning Automatic Rifle, the 7.62mm infantry squad weapon that would later become an enduring symbol of American forces in World War II. 7.62 millimeter is the metric equivalent of 30-06, in case you're confused by American ballistics designations. The BAR got its combat debut here in France in 1918, and now these Texas and Oklahoma doughboys were marching into battle with it. And the 2nd Division Marines, who saw them, were quick to relieve them of their new BARs. It led to an interesting situation related by William Scanlon in his 1929 fictionalized memoir titled God Have Mercy on Us. Quote, That afternoon, a runner came up from battalion headquarters with a message for the officer in charge. I sent him on to Lieutenant Kelton, but pretty soon he brought the message back to me with a request to notify the men. The message was not long, but it said enough. As I remember, it ran like this. Have the men in your command return all equipment that belongs to the 36th Division back to the members of the 36th Division, especially the Browning automatic rifles. No relief of this battalion will be made until all Browning automatic rifles are accounted for. Kelton perhaps did not know what it was all about, but I had my suspicions. I went down along the line and told the fellows plainly that if they had a Browning tucked away anywhere, or knew where one was, to get it and give it back to the Indians, and to make sure that the Indians knew they had it. I added that a search was to be made, and any of our men found with a Browning would be run up for a shoot. Also, that there was no chance for a relief until the Indians got their Brownings back. Then I hurried back to my hole and quietly pushed aside an old piece of German blanket and gently lifted up a brand new Browning and a bunch of magazines for it. The first day the Indians ganged up in my hole, one of them forgot his Browning when he was getting out. I carefully hung the piece of blanket over it so it wouldn't get dirty and hoped that the man who owned it would not come hunting for it. It had one magazine in it. I took it with me when the Germans pulled off their counterattack but I didn't get a chance to use it. One of the Indians had a hole right in back of mine. I asked him, Did you have a browning? And held it up so he could see what I was talking about. He nodded his head, yes. I said, Where is it? He humped his shoulders as much as to say, I don't know, and don't give a damn. You take this one and go tell your captain you've got it. Later on, I went back along our line. Every so often, one of the fellows would pipe up with, That Indian got a browning. Or, there's a browning. 
Altogether, our company turned back about 25 Brownings, and there were no questions asked. End quote. Men were rushed into place, and the attack orders went out during the night of the 7th through the 8th. It was thought that the Marines were holding Saint-Étienne after providing some assistance to the French, but this was not true. The objective of the 71st Brigade was to push through Saint-Étienne and keep pushing all the way through to Machaut, five kilometers to the north. On the left, the French 7th DI took over but the poilus of the battered 62nd Infantry Regiment stayed on in the western part of Saint-Étienne. The doughboys would be sent in to clear the eastern end, but of course they would have to deal with the Germans who had reoccupied the ruins and the machine-gun fortress that was the cemetery just outside of the town. The 71st Brigade under Brigadier General Pegram Whitworth, deployed its 142nd Infantry Regiment on the left of the division sector, meaning it would be dealing with Blodnitz Hill and Saint-Étienne. To the right was a 141st Infantry Regiment, which was looking to get across the Saint-Étienne-Orfoy Road. Things inevitably began to go wrong. Attack orders at the company level arrived far too late. Early in the morning hours of October 8th, the guns went off, lighting up the cold and wet darkness as thousands of shells screamed over towards the German rear areas. The front line could not be targeted as the artillery batteries didn't know exactly where American positions were. Orders that were received in the jump-off lines were hurriedly given out, but many officers just received commands for the attack, quote, to be conducted in a generally northern direction, end quote. The guns shifted in their stationary bombardment and switched into a rolling barrage for all the good it would do so far away. 2nd Battalion, 142nd Infantry would be leading with the 1st Battalion in support and the 3rd in reserve. Officers called their men forward, and forward they rushed into the strobe-like mix of darkness and shell impacts. The men of the 36th Division were new at this game, and the Germans would give them no first-timers pass. German counter-battery fire came crashing in amongst the bunched-up doughboys, and once they were really presenting themselves, the Germans opened up with a scything of machine-gun fire. Lieutenant Colonel Otto wrote that in its advance in a northwesterly direction, the 2nd Battalion, 142nd Infantry, advancing as the first attack wave, crossed Blodnitz Hill, Hill 160, broke the resistance of the Germans at the west slope of the hill, and thereafter directed its activities chiefly against the cemetery northeast of Saint-Étienne. Here, Upon and between the graves, the Germans had emplaced numerous machine guns having a firing range of from 500 to 1,000 meters and an effective range over an arc of 180 degrees extending from southwest to northeast. Officers and many NCOs in the lead, along with many of their men, shuddered or danced terribly as bullets tore into them. As units found themselves leaderless, some men took charge in the chaos. One of them was Corporal Samuel H. Sampler of Company H, 142nd Infantry, on Blodnitz Hill. Sampler's company, quote, having suffered severe casualties during an advance under machine gun fire, was finally stopped. Corporal Sampler detected the position of the enemy machine guns on an elevation, Armed with German hand grenades, which he had picked up, he left the line and rushed forward in the face of heavy fire until he was near the hostile nest, where he grenaded the position. His third grenade landed among the enemy, killing two, silencing the machine guns, and causing the surrender of 28 Germans, whom he sent to the rear as prisoners. As a result of his act, the company was immediately enabled to resume the advance. End quote. Corporal Sampler would earn the Medal of Honor for his actions. He would not be alone in receiving the award for actions that day. 
Another corporal in Company F, Harold L. Turner, was helping, quote, in organizing a platoon consisting of the battalion scouts, runners, and a detachment of signal corps. As second in command of this platoon, he fearlessly led them forward through heavy enemy fire, continually encouraging the men. Later, he encountered deadly machine gun fire, which reduced the strength of his command to but four men, and these were obliged to take shelter. The enemy machine gun emplacement, 25 yards distant, kept up a continual fire from four machine guns. After the fire had shifted momentarily, Corporal Turner rushed forward with fixed bayonet and charged the position alone, capturing the strong point with a complement of 50 Germans and one machine gun. His remarkable display of courage and fearlessness was instrumental in destroying the strong point, the fire from which had blocked the advance of his company. End quote. Corporal Turner would later receive the Medal of Honor as well. Heading towards Saint-Étienne, the men of G Company came up to strands of barbed wire strung out in front of the ruins of the village. Still believing that Marines were in possession of the village, the surviving doughboys began stepping their way into the gaps in the wire. When there were enough of them in the lanes, three German machine gun nests positioned around Saint-Étienne and in its cemetery opened up a crisscrossing storm of fire that dropped the Americans like lead weights. Fighting around Saint-Étienne now became fierce. A machine gunner in the village's church tower dominated the battlefield, quote, was causing considerable damage in the ranks of the advancing battalions until a well-placed shot from one of the 37mm rifles caused the German machine gunner to tumble from his perch, end quote. The German strongpoint in the cemetery was now under direct and withering fire from American machine gun teams, some of whom were on Bloodnitz Hill nearby. The French came at the village from the west. The doughboys of the 2nd Battalion, 142nd Infantry, hit the cemetery, spread into the village, and found themselves in hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Marines of 1st Battalion, 6th Marine Regiment, came in to support the fight for the village. Inside the village was chaos. No one could say for sure who held it. The cemetery outside Saint-Étienne changed hands several times as Americans and Germans battled tooth and nail to take it. Supporting French tanks clanked their way into the front line, but German Lieutenant Colonel Otto used the report of the German 368th Infantry Regiment to relate what they contributed. Quote, His attacks were supported by five tanks. These appeared first at points east of Bloodnitz Hill, but the machine guns of the 1st Machine Gun Company immediately forced them to turn back. Thereupon, they began to circle around Bloodnitz Hill and attempted to attack our lines from the west. Here again, they were subjected to the fire of the 2nd Machine Gun Company. Three tanks were damaged and withdrew. Two remained on the battlefield, totally destroyed. As the Germans soaked the battlefield with artillery and gas shells, the doughboys of the 1st Battalion, 142nd Infantry, pushed up to avoid the worst of the barrage. The reserve 3rd Battalion moved up as well, bunching everyone up as they attempted to maneuver west around Blodnitz Hill. The hill, part of which was held by the pitiful remnants of the German 2nd Battalion, 368th Infantry Regiment, under command of a Hauptmann Lattmann, was now surrounded. Lachmann surrendered with the remaining men he had. A few managed to escape to report the news. From there, the doughboys reached the Saint-Étienne-Orfoy Road and then attacked towards the Saint-Étienne-Semide Road further up. But attacking this far ahead left the right flank of the 142nd Infantry in the air, unprotected by the 141st to the right. The men of the 142nd had to pull back to a line running from Bloodnitz Hill to Saint-Étienne. It was good that they did so. A German counterattack probed that very split between the two American regiments, looking for a way to break through and separate the units. In Saint-Étienne, a German attack at 5.30 in the evening was stopped by the combined efforts of the Poilus and Marines in the ruins. 
2nd Division engineers and Marines held the cemetery as the 142nd Infantry Doughboys were working to establish what positions they could with all their casualties and chaos. On the 71st Brigade's right, the 141st Infantry Regiment attacked across the Saint-Étienne-Orfoy Road. The regiment's left front immediately began taking heavy fire, and as men dropped and screamed and cried out, unit cohesion evaporated. Things got worse from there. From Lieutenant Colonel Otto. At 7.30 a.m., the tanks attached to this regiment came into action. The runner had been unable to get in touch with the commanding officer of the tank detachment, as a result of which he received the attack orders only after considerable delay. Hence, the tanks did not appear on the left flank of the foremost battalion, the 2nd Battalion, 141st Infantry Regiment, until about 15 minutes after it had formed for the attack. The tanks may perhaps have helped some of the forward squads of riflemen, but there was no cooperation between tanks and the infantry, the tanks rolling aimlessly ahead and thus giving almost negligible assistance. But the worst of it was that twice they fired into their own infantry and caused heavy losses. Afterwards, all the tanks left the battlefield. Acting with the permission of the regimental commander, 141st Infantry Regiment, they were all withdrawn during the afternoon. The veteran Germans were no less brave than their fresh-faced American counterparts. Otto also wrote of the following, quote, Numerous tanks were destroyed or forced to retreat. Private First Class Buddha of the 1st Battalion, 55th Infantry Regiment, with a concentrated charge, Gebalta Ladung, wrote the fini of one of these tanks. Its occupants, the squadron commander and his adjutant, were made prisoners. End quote. Private Eugene McLean's 132nd Machine Gun Company went over the top as shells rained down around him. Quote, it excited me a lot, as it was the first shells that had been fired over me, and I couldn't tell if they were Bosch or not. But it didn't take me long to tell the difference when a GI can hit close to me. Well, we advanced over the hill, and the infantry came in contact with some Huns. And believe me, those Redskins, Oklahoma Native Americans, didn't have any mercy on them. End quote. Surviving men of the 2nd Battalion, 9th Infantry, hurriedly moved up to connect with the 141st Infantry on the left and the French 346th Infantry Regiment on the right. The fighting devolved into small actions carried out by those who took the initiative. One of those men was Company A, 141st Infantry First Sergeant named Sam Dreben, a.k.a. the Fighting Jew. I kid you not, that's the name of a biography of him. Born in a shtetl in what is now the Ukraine, Dreben ran from then-imperial Russia to avoid the soul-crushing life of being Jewish in a virulently anti-Semitic country. He made his way to the United States, where he... Well, let me quote author David Laskin, who wrote, If Sam Dreben had not been an actual person, he might have been concocted by some Hollywood hack, end quote. Dreben escaped Russia and its mandatory military service to eventually come to the U.S., where he was to become a tailor. However, the world of haberdashery wasn't for him. Dreben joined the United States Army and embarked on a military career that saw him as a soldier in the Philippines and Central America, being a soldier of fortune for a while in Revolution-era Mexico, and even becoming friends with an American general officer named John J. Pershing. A short, squat Dreben lived the life that probably most adventurous young men may only ever dream about. Dreben was now in the front line with Company A on the wooded Blankmont Ridge. Having learned of the death of his baby daughter as he crossed the ocean, Dreben had chosen to stay with his men. A man of his particular skill set was needed here, now. Especially 
when Company A was held up by terrific machine gun fire throughout the day. The unit survivors spent hours crawling, staying down, and firing back at the Germans when they could. As the sun went down that afternoon, the men saw a large group of Germans coming through a clearing in the woods. Draben took charge, and thanks to David Laskin's book, we have his own account of what happened. Quote, About 4 p.m. that evening, one of our men on an outpost called my attention to some troops advancing in our direction, and at the same time he fired a shot. I told him to stop firing, as it was possible that the party advancing were French. However, after a close inspection with my glasses, it was getting dark in the woods at this time, I satisfied myself absolutely that they were the enemy and carrying several machine guns. I immediately called for volunteers to go out and attack them, for I realized that if they took up positions on our right, they would command our position. From 20 to 30 responded to my call, and we went on at double time to meet Fritz, shooting and shouting all the time while we were charging them, as we were only a little over a hundred yards from them. Here is where I realized the value of the Browning automatic rifle, as in less than 10 minutes, about 58 big, husky, well-equipped Boches were stretched out nicely, resting in peace. We took two prisoners for information. We gathered up four machine guns and one instrument that appeared to be used for signaling or telegraphing. About this time, I saw a red signal or flare directly in front of our position and about three or four hundred yards away. I immediately gave the order to double time back and not to mind the booty, and we returned without the loss of a man. No sooner had we reached our positions when they did open a terrific barrage on us. End quote. Sam Dreben's axe would be one of the few high points for the 141st Infantry Regiment that day. The regiment took some 25% casualties for little gain. At the end of the day, the American line ran from northeast of Saint-Étienne to Bloodnitz Hill to northwest of Medea Farm. The line north of the Saint-Étienne-Orfoy Road was reported as filled with bodies. That night, the Germans positively soaked the French and American lines with a relentless rain of shells. The American response to that was weaker than usual, as 2nd Division artillery had no clear idea where the Doughboys' front line was. The next day, the French 7th DI had a hard time making any progress, while another attack by the 142nd made gains that were given up later that night. By nightfall, the 36th Division's other brigade, the 72nd, was already moving up to relieve the 71st. The latter brigade was disorganized and shaken apart with heavy casualties. On the 10th, orders came to advance with the French divisions on either side of the 71st Brigade. Intelligence reports came in showing that the Germans were sounding a slow and steady retreat to the end, and it was imperative to stay in contact with them. The 142nd did not attack, while the 141st attacked late in the afternoon, reaching the Saint-Étienne-Sky Farm Road. Also on the 10th, the 72nd Brigade moved in. The 144th Infantry Regiment took over on the left, and the 143rd Infantry took over on the right. The doughboys of the 144th were immediately introduced to an enemy artillery bombardment that sent them hunkering down wherever they could, while the 143rd was unable to attack as it had no clear identification of where the front line actually was. Things were in a new phase now, though. The French 21st Corps issued new orders for the 11th of October. The Germans were indeed retreating, but still putting up a stiff fight. From Lieutenant Colonel Otto's book, we know this was German policy, to make a retreat so costly for the Allies that they would sue for peace with Germany in order to stop the bloodletting. We also know that the Allies, under Marshal Foch, had no such intentions. They planned and were carrying out the exact opposite, 
to put the screws to the German army so brutally that it would make Germany howl. Major General Nalan and his 21st Corps would do its part. The plan for the 36th Division on the 11th was threefold. First objective, a northwest-southeast line from crossroads 800 meters north of Skay Farm to the narrow-gauge railroad two kilometers south of Machot. Second objective, the line semid Machot. Third objective, the line Lafancourt-Dricourt. Jump-off came at 0930, with the doughboys of the 143rd taking out machine-gun nests east of Machot. This cleared the way for the men of the 144th on the brigade's left to take Machot after German artillery blasted its own defenders inside the village and left them too stunned to respond to the American assault. Machot was taken without a fight. With Machot taken, the east-west supply line for the Champagne Front was cut, making the prospect of holding on to the Champagne region ever more unlikely for the Germans. 72nd Brigade advanced several kilometers that day, and on the left, the French 7th Division reached the line south of Mont Saint-Rémy. The Germans were now retreating across the entire Champagne Front, pulling back as safely as they could to the River N. The 36th Division was now in full pursuit mode. On the 12th, 2nd Battalion, 143rd Infantry, reached Vaux-Champagne. Orders were to push to the end while staying in contact with the French on either side. By October 13th, they were there. French and American units cleaned up any remaining resistance on the southern banks of the River N along the Canal des Ardennes, while some French units already attempted to cross the river. Snipers had to be hunted out of Attigny and Givry along the N. Private Albert John Carpenter, a 19-year-old in headquarters company of the 142nd Infantry, kept a small diary during what he would call the most eventful month of my life. He would be on the front as a signaler the entire time the 36th would be in combat. On the 13th, Carpenter reported, quote, It has rained all day. Bosch retreated 25 kilometers, still sick from gas, marched from Saint-Étienne to Vaux-Champagne, very, very tired, end quote. The lines now stabilized along the end for the next couple of weeks. Private Carpenter noted the days in his notebook, writing on October 14th that, my company digs in and prepares for another battle. Bosch have good position across the N River. Very dark. Now and then, Bosch shells would come near. Still raining. Sleeping open all night. Nearly froze. An awful headache. French artillery close to my hole. The next day, he noted that, Rested all day, thank God. Bosch seemed to be resting easy also. Nothing but artillery fire. Days later, he wrote that there was not much doing on front outside of sniping and patrols. Carpenter captures the very local and immediate world he and the men of his unit lived in, surrounded by the threat of death and constant danger, knowing only what was happening in and around their sector. On the 19th, he wrote, the River N and Canal du Nord seem to have made a good stronghold for the Bosch. We are nearly flanked on the right by the Bosch. The French are unable to advance on our right. We may be taken prisoners at any minute. May have to throw my diary away, destroy it. The line of the 36th Division slowly extended east as the mammoth American division was capable of holding a longer line than the French divisions. The danger on the right mentioned by Private Carpenter was at the eastern end of his division's sector, where a loop of the end contained Forêt Ferme, which was then still held by the Germans. French attacks to clear the farm complex had failed, and the task now fell to the Doughboys. On October 27th, 
the doughboys of the 71st Brigade were assigned the task of assaulting Forêt Farm, with engineers and artillery of the 2nd Division assisting. In contrast to the rushed attacks in the Blancmont sector, now miles to the rear, the 36th Division leadership approached things differently this time. Before the farm complex was attacked, it was hit with a preparatory artillery barrage. Prior to the assault, all of the men involved were briefed, and every doughboy knew his job before jump-off came. There was also a World War II-related development that was a World War I first. Because of the high incidence of Allied communications being intercepted by the Germans, the 36th Division utilized several of its Native American members as radio men. These men used their Choctaw language to talk over the telephone lines, and the Germans listening in were completely flummoxed by this unknown tongue. It was the first use of the famous wind talkers. Forêt Farm was hit on the 27th after a 20-minute pounding by artillery that began at 4.30 p.m. local time. By 6.10 p.m., both the 142nd and the 141st Infantry units were on the objective and cleaning it out. The operation, after careful planning that would eventually become a standard feature of U.S. Army operational doctrine, went off incredibly successfully. Albert Carpenter recorded in his diary that the 142nd have taken 130 prisoners and several guns, as well as more praise from the French general, presumably Major General Nola, the corps commander. On October 29th, the Doughboys of the 36th were relieved by the French 22nd Division. The 36th Division was sent to the American 1st Army Reserves for rest and refit. The war ended before they could be employed elsewhere. From units organic to its structure, the 36th Division, AEF, lost over 2,550 men in the Champagne sector. Lieutenant Colonel Ernst Otto had some respect to give to the men of the 36th Division as well. I don't know anything else about him aside from what he wrote in his pricey and hard-to-find book, but I think Otto was a gent I could sit with and respect. That he gave his enemies this much consideration says a lot about him and his character. Quote, Now, what judgment is to be passed on the failure of the attack on October 8th of the American 71st Infantry Brigade? The 36th Infantry Division, when brought to the front, had only just completed its period of intensive training in the camps behind the front, and moreover, it had never been engaged in combat before. This attack of October 8th, then, was simply a baptism of fire for troops who had as yet had no experience in warfare. The tremendous impression which the failure of this attack created on these inexperienced troops is psychologically easy to explain. When the German troops first entered the field, we had the same experience with a number of our own regiments, which afterward fought courageously throughout the war. Doubtless, another contributing factor was the unrest and nervousness among the troops as a result of the delayed attack orders. Probably, they had also been told that the Germans were at the end of their strength, so that the men, after going through the ordeal of attack and then encountering powerful counterattacks, felt their expectations completely betrayed. But the major share of the failure may be attributed to the tactical method of attack adopted, the so-called attack in battalion column. This step-by-step employment of the regiment, in which the frontline battalion occupied the entire length of the line of departure, The next following battalion was held in readiness as a second attack wave, and the last served in a like manner as a third attack wave, had of course the advantage, in connection with the previously mentioned leapfrog advance, that within the front lines there remained always a reserve of fresh, still undepleted forces. It is even very probable that, 
During the successful advance of the Americans on October 3rd, this method proved advantageous. But it carried with it the danger that the rearward lines might crumble and weaken simply because a number of naturally timid men might become frightened and seek protection in the lines of the battalion which had temporarily come to a halt. In the attack on October 8th, when the front lines saw their advance checked by the Germans, it brought about a mixture of units, what is called in German a Schutzenbrei, or mix-up of men of various organizations. Into such a Schutzenbrei, with all units in one line, the whole brigade was transformed within a very few hours. To carry on an offensive with such disorganized masses of troops is impossible. Confronted with such an unusual situation, the men must necessarily have come to the conclusion that the things they had learned with so much difficulty and sweat on the parade grounds were all wrong. Therewith, they lost all confidence in the value of their training, in their own physical capabilities, in the effectiveness of their weapons. Even on October 10th, when the Germans had only very thin forces of infantry within their own lines, these men of the 36th Division dug in whenever the German artillery opened fire. Such conditions would never have arisen had the battalions attacked abreast of one another, deeply echeloned within their own lines. In other words, had they followed the German or even the French method of attack. This latter method enables the regimental commander to have his 3rd Battalion available at all times. But even in such cases, a military unit may suffer a period of depression. It would be wrong to draw from that foregoing the conclusion that the troops of the American 36th Division had only a second-class value. If we had occasion here to review subsequent events in the war, we should no doubt see that, after having overcome their own period of depression, the 36th Infantry Division accomplished many a brilliant attack. End quote. With that, the Battle of Blankmont Ridge is over. Next episode, we return to the Meuse-Argonne Front. We've been away from the AEF 1st Army Front for a long time, and it's time to get back there. It's also time to talk about an integral part of the Meuse-Argonne campaign, an episode that was famous and known back home in the States even before it was over. It's time to talk about the Lost Battalion, folks. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.